0: an island in the pacific and everything about it is terrific i got the sun to tend me palms to fan me and occasional man. you're listening to episode 56 of sassmouth dame's podcast i'm your host Megan mcgurk Ten years ago, my husband and I were touring the Vatican when I was taken by surprise by an Italian woman. She was in a heated discussion with a paramour and tried to pull me into their dispute. She wanted me to take her side and settle some argument. When I opened my mouth to respond, the look on her face told me that she hadn't anticipated my American accent. She looked me up and down to be sure and then apologized in English before she turned back and continued her row with the boyfriend. I was delighted. I'd made an effort to dress for the afternoon in the Vatican so I wouldn't have to wear one of those yellow whore ponchos that they hand out to women they think are showing too much skin. I wore a charcoal gray sheath a matching cardigan and pointed-toe flats. I was channeling Irene Dunn, or I thought to myself when I left the hotel that morning, what would Irene Dunn think of what I'm wearing? The stylish Italian woman hadn't taken me for an American, and it made my day, if not the entire trip to Rome. A few weeks later, though, it dawned on me that I had a bit of Fran Dodsworth in me. For good or ill, I didn't want to be instantly recognized as an American. I'd like to think, though, that over the years I've softened into an Edith Courtright after a decade of living in Europe. When you have the experience, you don't need to be a snob. Snobbery, after all, is a badge of deep insecurity. For this episode, I'm looking at Mary Astor in Dodsworth from 1936, who in the role of Edith Courtright exemplifies the women-who-teach-men genre of woman's pictures. As Edith Courtwright, Mary looks like she just stepped out of a Neapolitan fresco with a generous brow, enormous eyes, wide cheeks, and a tiny mouth. She has the bone structure of women reared under boughs of fresh rosemary, the type soothed with olive oil in a bath. She has the look of history stamped on her face with a delicate melancholia that speaks of private thoughts tucked away from men. She's learned to hide things. In less expert hands, the role could have embodied something saccharine or a milksop. But Edith is no recluse, no doormat. Edith embodies the dignity of living alone without being lonely or tragic, as our culture has always liked to imagine the fate of women without a man. She's worldly, educated, stylish, capable. Mary's Edith teaches Walter Euston Sam Dodsworth that there's life beyond American capitalism. She teaches him that there's an alternate rhythm, another pace to life, outside the factory time clock of 9-to-5 industry and productivity. In Italy, she demonstrates how the day revolves around people and places and quiet reflection. A day in Italy is a visit to La Pescheria, in the daily errands of gathering the shellfish for clam chowder, the produce from the vegetable market, the bread from the bakery, the food chain breaks down small human encounters. Rather than the big American supermarkets Dodsworth knew from home, with one-stop shopping, where things are convenient but not necessarily fresh or good, Sam becomes attuned to a domestic economy instead of industrial efficiency. Edith teaches Sam to be part of a community, to talk with the merchants for the fresh catch, the harvest vegetables, and the bread fresh from the oven. Life in Edith's Italian villa revolves around the sea, the little shops, and meals that mark out the day. Sam learns a new definition for value, the value of his life. His character is completely transformed in Naples. He doesn't bark out orders. He isn't a tyrant about where his post should be, who moved his things, or where his whiskey is supposed to be, as he was back home in Zenith. In Edith Courtwright's villa, Sam realizes what he has to gain by giving up being the man in his castle and that world view, the one that leads to marital strife and an early grave. Being the boss, the head of the house, is a mugs game. As a guest in Edith's villa, Sam learns to break bad patterns and learn new things. Mary Astor embodies one of the most potent fantasies for women when she plays Edith Courtright. Edith lives the life that Betty Davis dreams of years later in Now Voyager when she says she hopes to live alone in single blessedness. Edith lives in a villa outside Naples. She's entirely self-sufficient, independent, dignified, cultured. The first thing that we learn about her is that she isn't a snob. Swaddled in fur on the ship's deck, she starts a conversation with Walter Euston when he's at the rail looking for the first glimpse of the English coast. He's a greenhorn, geeking out over his first voyage on the continent. Mary's character doesn't shun him or judge his lack of experience like his wife Fran does. She engages him in conversation and recommends a drink to steady him as the ship approaches the coast. She suggests he order a stout. A stout seems the perfect suggestion for the occasion. Every time Mary Astor is in a scene in this picture, I want to hear more from her. I want her to expand at length. Later on the ship, when she's sitting at a table with Walter Euston Sam, he asks her a little bit about her life. He asks, what do you want? She replies, what do you suppose any lone woman wants? Their conversation abruptly ends, but I'm yelling at the screen. Tell me more, Edith. What do you want? And I want to see that she gets it. Edith later joins a small party for Fran's birthday when they are in Paris, in the Dodsworth's hotel room. Even someone who lacks a vocabulary for talking about fashion knows that something's amiss at the sight of Fran and Edith. Fran Dodsworth, played by Ruth Chatterton, wears a large bow in her décolletage that seems more debutante than matron, There's something infantilized about it and worrisome, as though she were begging to be unwrapped. Also, the straps are too thin, it's cut too low in the back. Her gown is try-hard. It reveals her anxiety, her insecurity about her age. Edith Courtright, by contrast, looks chic wearing a draped neckline gown with an embellished belt. When Fran claims to be only 35 and makes a bitchy remark about how she hopes to look as good as Edith when she's her age, I cringe hard. Keep in mind that when they made this picture, Mary Astor was only 30 years old and Ruth Chatterton much older, I think 43. Rather than return fire or be rattled, Edith takes the high road. She treats Fran with empathy and kindness, even when it must be so tempting to laugh in her face. And because Edith is kind, Fran seems even more chastened. I love that we don't get a catfight in Dodsworth. It's a good lesson to be reminded of, that the high road is often its own reward. Edith doesn't need to be bitchy. She knows Fran is in deep turmoil. When Edith is about to leave the birthday party, she catches sight of the obvious sexual heat brewing between Fran and an admirer, the financier played by Paul Lukash. She offers the gentlest caution possible. In three words, she pulls Fran Dodsworth short. My dear, don't. Edith intervenes for Fran's sake. She doesn't do this to say, don't do this to your husband. Edith knows how vulnerable Fran is and how messy this game will turn out to become. Fran's walking into a heap of trouble. Mary Astor's face crinkles with pain when she knows how badly this is going to end. Oftentimes, when we see this kind of scene on screen, the clandestine erotic games, they're fodder for a smug superiority on the side of one woman. It's a way for women to grandstand each other. I'm thinking of Fred McMurray's secretary in the apartment when she tells Shirley McLean about his success rate in the typing pool, or the former flame in Unfinished Business who spreads the kiss between Irene Dunn and P- Preston Foster all over the party until every tongue is wagging and Irene Dunn is humiliated. There's no triumph in the encounter for Mary Astor's character, I like to think Edith Cortwright left the party thanking her lucky star she wasn't embroiled in that intrigue. When Edith and Sam meet again, it's in the American Express travel office in Naples. The mostly silent scene shows the two acquaintances in shifting perspectives. First, Sam's in the foreground, and Edith recedes along the frame of the periphery. The perspective changes where Edith moves to the front of the queue for the service counter. They nearly miss each other, until Edith hears a man call for a porter to arrange transport for Mr. Dodsworth. She turns. Capricious fate could have made it a misconnection. On his own, estranged from Fran, Sam looks disjointed and pouts, filling his time with seeing the sights he clearly draws no pleasure from. Under a wide-brimmed hat, Edith takes over. Her authority with language, place, and custom puts Sam in an unfamiliar position of not being in charge. He doesn't rankle. He opens himself to a new experience. Sam asks what her neighbors will say, and she all but laughs in his face. You're not in Zenith anymore, buddy boy. What the neighbors think isn't the most important thing in the world. For all of her cosmopolitan charm and polish, it's when Mary Astor becomes fragile that she turns in one of the most brilliant performances of her career. The domestic bliss Edith shares with Sam comes to a halt when Fran rings the villa incessantly in a series of hang-ups. Edith's brow clouds over with a woman's intuition about who's on the other end. The shrill telephone interrupts their lazy afternoon. Fran ran to the phone a minute after the visit from Maria Uspenskaya, a tiny scold in black lace and a crucifix. She is the grim reaper for Fran when she asks her if she knows how little happiness there can be for an old wife of a young husband. Madame Arsenic in Old Lace tells Fran there will be no wedding bells in her future. Fran Dodsworth runs for the phone like it was the last boat leaving the Titanic. What would she do without a man in her life? Suddenly she wants Sam back. And Dodsworth, the factory man, runs for her call as though it were the 9 a.m. factory whistle. Duty bound, he tells Edith he owes it to Fran. Stricken, desolate, the look on Mary Astor's face when she stands with her back to Sam to hear him saying he's going back to his wife gives me a larger pain in my chest than the acid reflux from a pot of coffee followed by a carafe of grapefruit juice. She stands on the patio and looks out to the Bay of Naples to watch Sam sail off and forever out of her life. Where did she go when she looks out into a void? Did Mary Astor recall the grief each time she had to leave the exquisite lovemaking with playwright George Kaufman, the sweat-slicked nights they spent in bed together until dawn, and then when she had to return to her husband, Dr. Franklin Thorpe, who was cold as ice mackerel? Did she think about how she never knew a touch of love or kindness until John Barrymore introduced her to the erotic arts when she was 17? Did she wonder why life gave her parents who were so cruel and harsh and greedy that they took her money from the time she was 14 years old? That she had given her father by this point nearly half a million dollars, nearly all the profit she made from her years in film, and yet he still sued her, wanting more than his mansion with two cars and three servants? Was it the news of her first husband's death that she thought of while she looked out to sea? Did she summon how she felt when she learnt Ken Hawks died in a plane crash while shooting for a picture, which made her a widow at only 23 years old? Mary Astor knew plenty of sadness in her life to use in the moment when she loses the man she loves. Without need for hyperbole, I can tell you that what Edith Courtright experienced on screen was nothing compared to what was happening to Mary Astor in real life while she filmed Doddsworth. Mary Astor's lawyer had advised her to file for custody hearing to have the terms of her divorce settlement amended, to be rid of her controlling husband, Franklin Thorpe, who upbraided her on the regular while he drained her bank account, Mary had initially agreed to his terms. He had their daughter Marilyn for six months of the year. She also agreed to sign over most of the $60,000 she had in the bank. Her father, remember, had spent the rest of her money. Thorpe had demanded it threatened to turn her over her diary that he stole from her to the courts and the press, which would have damaged her reputation and film career. Mary Astor's diary covered the period from 1929 to 1934 and included her private thoughts on her extramarital adventures. Meanwhile, Thorpe's first marriage had never been legally dissolved before he married Mary Astor. He had plenty of his own affairs, and he spent Mary's money like a drunken sailor. And he was abusive to their daughter, Marilyn. Dodsworth began filming in June 1936. Mary had believed her attorney when he assured her that the case might not be called for a full year. Unfortunately, he was mistaken. The custody suit was brought to the court schedule for July, right in the middle of the film production. Thorpe attempted to sway the ruling by feeding excerpts from Mary's diary to the press. A media frenzy grew around what they called Mary's Purple Diary. Rumors circulated that Mary kept a scorecard that rated the sexual performance of the top leading men in Hollywood. Mary protested that it was a lie, a forgery from Thorpe. Supposedly, Mary's diary was kept under lock and key by Thorpe's attorney. Reports that one big name from a New York tabloid offered $5,000 for the diary. You can imagine how easy it was for a newspaper to grab headlines by publishing so-called excerpts from Mary's Purple Diary. Thorpe himself fanned the sex scandal with fabricated entries that Mary swore up and down she never wrote. Mary's diary dominated the headlines in the summer of 1936, to the exclusion of every other story, including news on Hitler and the the Depression. Mary Astor was painted as the Whore of Babylon, as far as the tabloids were concerned. She wrote her memoir, I had achieved the reputation of being the greatest nympho courtesan since Pompadour. After shooting for 10 or 12 hours a day in Goldwyn's studio, she went to court at 7 o'clock each evening for the custody battle. The judge had made the concession for the evening court hours because Hollywood, after all, is a company town. Mary's co-star, Ruth Chatterton, had asked her before the first night in court if Mary had someone who would sit close by her and offer her a wink of encouragement when she needed it. Mary didn't. Her friends were too wary of the scandal and the consequences it might have for their own film careers. Weekly, Mary replied that she would have her mother there, which must have caught in her throat, since her mother Helen had not only sided with Thorpe earlier, but also carried news to him about Mary's amorous adventures. In an act of supreme kindness, Ruth chattered and asked, May I drive you down and be with you? It's the request, the soul of courtesy, the may I, that stands out for me as one of the most compassionate moments of Mary's ordeal. And Ruth Chatterton sat next to Mary Astor in court every night. A reporter had asked Ruth why she put her career at risk by testifying as a character witness for Mary in the courtroom and for being next to her each night. Ruth replied, she looks half dead. Someone's got to support her. In her memoir, Mary Astor wrote that she channeled Edith Courtright when she took the stand. She wore immaculate black frocks, sat under a wide-brimmed hat, and wore white gloves, which she kept very still in her hands. Well known for having a sass mouth, Mary refrained from using it on the stand. Chin up, she stayed cool and dignified. But still, the strain on Mary began to show in the daily rushes, with dark circles appearing under her eyes. Sam Golwin contacted the judge and told him that 500 people depended on Mary for their livelihood. Again, the judge was part of a company town, so he called for a recess for the case so that Mary could finish the picture. She wasn't exactly free to rest just yet. Mary received word one day to report to Goldwyn's office at night. Assembled in Goldwyn's office were the heads of the major studios and their lawyers. They were there to wag their fingers. Mary faced in the room Sam Goldwyn, Jack Warner, Louis Mayer and Irving Thalberg from MGM, Harry Cohn from Columbia, and... A.H. Giannini from United Artists, and Jesse Lasky, the man who had bestowed the name Mary Astor on her when she was only 16 years old as Lucille Langhanke and signed with Famous Players. The men called Mary to the carpet to have her account for the salacious stories in the press that they felt put the film industry in jeopardy. Hollywood moguls ran private armies to keep the real-life affairs, squabbles, secret children, murders, drug and booze problems of their stars off the front pages. Reality must not intrude on the careful images the studio cultivated for the public's entertainment. Never mind that any one of them could have done so with their own scandals and backstage shenanigans. Thalberg tried to browbeat Mary into dropping her custody suit. Mayer went even further and tried to bully Sam Goldwyn into exercising the morals clause in Mary's contract and remove her from the picture. Quietly, Goldwyn responded, a mother fighting for her child, this is good. Later, after it was over, Walter Houston was waiting for Mary in her dressing room. She had been living there ever since the case started to avoid the bloodhounds and the press. Houston was waiting with champagne to soothe her. She told him what happened. Walter told Mary that once Mayer wanted her taken off the picture, she had been guaranteed of Goldwyn's support. Goldwyn had despised Mayer ever since he was pushed out of the MGM power structure when Metro and Goldwyn merged. His hatred for Mayer outweighed any concern for public opinion about Mary Astor's sex life. The men in the room underestimated the effect the media coverage had on the public. When Dodsworth premiered and the audience heard Mary deliver her first lines off screen, they burst into wild applause. Film critics mentioned in their review that Mary Astor received the most enthusiastic response from all the audiences. A new career dawned for Mary Astor after a brilliant performance given when she was put through the absolute ringer. The diary was eventually deemed inadmissible as evidence because missing pages confirmed it had been tampered with. Eventually, Mary's diary disappeared from the headlines when it was replaced by a bigger sex scandal, a royal one. When Edward VIII renounced the throne for Wallace Simpson, tabloids suddenly had bigger fish to fry. If you're wondering what happened to Mary's diary, it was burnt by court order in 1952. I wish the story people tell when they talk about Dodsworth were different. I'd like to revise what they say about Ruth Chatterton and offer an alternative critical lens. First, a surface reading of Fran Dodsworth isn't fair. She's not simply vain and selfish. The picture offers evidence that she was an ideal wife for more than 20 years. How do we know? We know Fran was a good wife because Sam was able to immerse himself in work and build an auto plant empire that was a commercial success. We know that she was a good wife from the scene when he's in their home in Zenith without her. And he shouts abuse about his post not being where it should be, his desk used as a puzzle board, his humidor used for a potted plant, and his whiskey not waiting for him. For more than two decades, Fran Dodsworth had seen to her husband's every need and whim. She catered to him. She supported him. She kept everything just as he liked it. We also know she did her job because their daughter is lovely and happily married. She's not a spoiled brat, even though her parents are wealthy enough to take early retirement. We also know that Fran was neglected all those years from Paul Lukash on the patio in Geneva when he observes, If your husband had saved some of the love for you he lavished on carburetors, maybe things would have been different for Fran. Fran did her share of sacrifice. She's fighting for her right to pleasure, for a fling. If she were a man, it would be a noble request. Fran's fatal flaw isn't a fear of growing old. Her fear runs deeper than that. What makes her tragic is that she can't be alone in the world without a man. She will never have the peace of a woman like Edith Courtright, a woman who can take pleasure in her own company. That's the lesson that's more meaningful than the age-shaming. The other part of the official version of Doddsworth that I'd like to revise is the one about Ruth Chatterton being difficult on set, that she resisted a dynamic characterization for her character and had tremendous rows with the director, William Wyler. Unfortunately, Hollywood histories often want to point the blame on someone, make a scapegoat for a production. When Sidney Howard adapted Sinclair Lewis's novel for the stage, and when he later adapted it with William Wyler for the screen, he had a guiding narrative rationale. Sidney Howard thought you could explain almost any choice a woman made based on a fear of growing old. I'd like to argue that Howard's outlook created a tidy way of explaining what happened on set. It's much too easy to say Ruth Chatterton had a problem with getting old, and so she was a monster on set. People are more complex than that. Mary Astor said that Ruth shared the same fear of getting old as Fran Doddsworth did, and the role cut too close to the bone. Mary Astor's memoir, William Wyler's interviews, and Wyler's biographers all attest to Ruth's difficult demeanor. Accounts say she once slapped Wyler in the face and then slammed the door to her dressing room. That Ruth once complained about Wyler's all-white linen attire as a distraction on set. When he asked if she preferred if he leave the set, she chimed in that she would, but doubted it could be arranged. Keep in mind that Wyler tailored his approach as a director to match what an actor needed. The Best Directors, it said, have a deep understanding of acting, and Wyler did. Wyler helmed productions that led to 36 acting nominations from the Academy and 14 wins. Wyler himself was nominated for Best Director a dozen times. He was attuned to the actor's process. For Margaret Sullivan, for example... Wyler offered a dinner invitation as an olive branch to end the furious rows they had on set. He later fell like a ton of bricks for Sullivan. They were married before they finished shooting The Good Fairy. For Benita Granville, he emphasized the importance of earnest sincerity in a performance. Jan Herman cites an interview with Granville where she looked back on the role she had in these three that brought her an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress when she was only 14 years old. Benito recalled that he stressed she couldn't fake it, not a bit of it, for a scene, and he taught her how to build the emotion up to a climax. For Mary Astor, she noted that he could use a spur but not the whip, or she would freeze right up. He put her into the story, deep into it, into the scene. And what I like to think of is an extension of the deep focus that aligns with the cinematography technique he made with pictures with Gregs Toland. Dodsworth was photographed by Rudy Mattei, but the spare camera style doesn't depart from Toland's method, keep it simple and direct. He liked acting that did the same. Betty Davis's rows with Wyler were the stuff of legend, but they won her an Oscar for Jezebel and made her the queen of Warner Brothers. She needed the turmoil to unleash her craft, and on more than one occasion she referred to Wyler as the love of her life. Their affair is also the stuff of Hollywood legend, as one of the most productive collaborations between a woman and her director. For Ruth Chatterton in Dodsworth, Weiler was the antagonist she needed to tap into Fran's rebellion after years of dull sacrifice. Her husband Sam is simply running at old age and she's not ready. Don't go gentle into that good night, Fran. In the script, Sam Dodsworth is so damn affable, likable. How can she find fault? Weiler stepped in to be her punching boy. Hollywood history might also give us a wider understanding of what happened between Chatterton and Wyler, that their relationship was more than fractious. In his biography of Ruth Chatterton, Scott O'Brien notes that Kay Francis recorded in her diary that she went to Ruth's home for a visit on the second of July when Dodsworth was in production. William Weiler was also a guest in Ruth's home on that occasion. Scott O'Brien notes that Weiler invited Ruth to dine, just like he had done with Margaret Sullivan to ease the tension on set. O'Brien also includes a report that Ruth was spotted on the back of Weiler's motorcycle for his customary postprandial ride one night. Just because they quarreled on set doesn't mean they were mortal enemies or anything less than professional and Walter Winchell noted that Ruth deserved a harvest of orchids for her support of Mary Astor during the media fiasco around the custody battle. I wish Mary had been kinder to Ruth in her memoir. During a row in a scene in Dodsworth, when Sam confronts Fran and her lover, the financier played by Paul Lukash, Dodsworth the sage asks, Did you ever notice how transparent people are when you really look at them? In one way, that's the heart of the old triangle business here, as he put it. An audience recognizes the real human drama in Dodsworth. Maybe Sam has never really bothered to look at his wife. Feeling unseen, Fran casts about for someone else. There are no villains in Dodsworth, just human beings making choices. William Wyler is still always one of my favorite directors because he believed in the integrity of women's stories. He didn't view them as a punishment or something to just get through in order to get to the next good assignment, like his best friend John Huston did years later when he became a director of films. If you'd like to read more about Mary Astor and the backstory for Dodsworth, I recommend Mary Astor, My Life on Film, one of the best Hollywood memoirs ever. Also, A Talent for Trouble, The Life of Hollywood's Most Acclaimed Director, William Wyler, by Jan Herman. Mary Astor's Purple Diary, The Great American Sex Scandal of 1936, by Edward Sorrell. Ruth Chatterton, Actress, Aviator, Author, by Scott O'Brien and Goldwyn, a biography by A. Scott Berg. Thanks for listening. I'm going to close with a brief excerpt from Mary's memoir about her time on the Dodsworth set. Most of my work was with Walter Houston, a warm, easygoing human being. He had played Dodsworth on the stage, and it was an enormous personal success. My part, Edith Courtright, had been played by his wife, Nanetta Sunderland. But he had the good taste and the wisdom never to bring it up. There was never any Nan did it this way kind of thing, which would have only confused me and made me feel uncomfortable. The days when just the two of us worked were the peaceful days on the set, and Willie didn't use up nearly as much film. Willie's way of getting an actor into line was simply to take the scene over and over again, I've heard as many as 60 takes and then say print take two. Even when he wasn't disciplining someone, he used more film than most directors. He was a perfectionist. I remember one entire afternoon spent shooting a scene of a crumpled letter being blown gently along the length of his terrace. He wanted it to go slowly for a way, then stop, then flutter along a little farther, and finally be caught up in a gust and blown over the edge of the balcony. It was the letter in which Mrs. Dodworth receives the word that she's going to be a grandmother. She crumples it and tosses it away and goes into the house, not wanting to accept it, for she is about to enter into another exciting affair with a young, attractive German boy. I don't remember the name of the young actor, but his mother was played magnificently by Maria Uspenskaya. One day it was getting about that time, quitting time. Everybody'd had it. And Willie said, okay, medium shot. Mary on the balcony. And transparency will work in the background. Everybody groaned, and I said, oh, Willie. He nodded and grinned his evil little grin at me. You look a little tired, Mary. It's good. Now. What can I tell you? Take your time with it, long as you want. I'm going to intercut with the stock shots and close ups of Walter, so it's got to finish high, but you know that. Just don't rush it. We've got lots of film. The Transparency was a huge rear movie projection of the Bay of Naples, with the city and all the activities of the harbor seen in the distance. It had been the background for the set for a week. The set was in the garden of a small villa in the hills. There was a fountain and a wall and doors leading into the interior of the house and greenery and rocky paths and flowers. It was a simple shot and wouldn't take long. All the little flow of questions and answers went back and forth. Where are you going to be, Mary? Right here, okay? Little more to the right. Little bit more so that vine isn't growing out of your head. I can't. I'm against the wall now. Want the wall out? A carpenter asked. No, it's okay. Hey, Greensman. Hey, Greensman. Cut this piece that's sticking out. Willie was over talking to someone, but he glanced over to me, a little wordless signal, and I put the little pot on to boil, and the conversation now took about half my attention. Camera said, let's see your look, please. About here. I looked, not at the transparency, but about three feet to one side of the camera and at a section of the floor beyond the set where there was a big can of sand for cigarette butts. It was marked, put your button here. I said, can I have a gobo in front of that can? I knew I'd just read the words, put your button here, over and over again. A grip placed the gobo a strip of black canvas on a wooden frame about ten feet by three at the place I pointed. Do you want a mark, he asked, a piece of chalk in his hand. Sometimes an X on the black field of the gobo helps one hold the spot to look at, to focus the eyes. Don't think so, thanks. Willie came in. Yes, put a mark. I think you will have to differentiate Mary a little, only a little, between the steamship and the motorboat. Let's see. And looking at me, he took the chalk and marked one spot on the gobo. Straight out. Distant, yes? And two feet lower. Look at it, please. Yes, that's good. Another X. He came in closer to talk over the hubbub. I think, Mary, you must give up totally, but accepting it. No, uh, no sadness. Just shift your weight a little. I mean, you're getting two feet on the ground or you'd fall apart. Then, when you want to, see the motorboat, right? It didn't take long. I stood there, and I looked, and then I raised my arm in greeting, and I said, Sam, Sam, cut. Want to hear the pot boiling? I stood there, and I looked at those silly X marks on a black gobo, and I thought of the man out there who was sailing on the Queen Mary from Naples Harbor, and I wasn't going to see him again ever. Ever. He'd gone back to his wife, even though she'd had affairs in all the capitals of Europe. And because I was who I was, Edith Courtright, I figured that even though it was going to be rough for a while, I'd get over it, maybe. And how beautiful and final that damn great ship looked as it was moving away from the wharf. Then, dropping my eyes to the other X mark, I saw my gardener in the motor launch, and I knew he was returning from having taken the passenger out to the ship. And I'd hope he'd done a little shopping while I was in town. And then I saw the other man with him, and I saw who it was, and dear God, he hadn't sailed. And the tears popped out, and I shot up my hand, and I yelled, Sam, Sam. And I was never so happy in my life. Me, me and Edith Courtright, for her happiness and mine had fused. Willie said, print it. Willie, who took so many takes of everything, I said, you kidding? I was fishing. I knew. One does. He shrugged. It's good. You'll see. It was good. Everything else was good. Just right. All that had previously occurred in this picture was back of this final fade-out of the story. There were cuts of Walter Houston. The audience knew, but they really wanted to enjoy the reaction of the woman when she saw him. And the background music soared under it. I had a lot going for me. At every theater, at every performance, the audience clapped their hands. It sounded like applause, but it was sheer joy. Thanks so much for listening. Join me next time for episode 57, when I look at Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer in Love Affair from 1939. After that episode, I'll be taking my annual autumn break when things get busy at work, and I'll return with new episodes in November. Thanks very much for listening. Bye.